You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Susan Hudson with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored, and I am joined by my lovely co-host, Dr. Carrie Bedient from Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hello. And Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. Hey, everybody. And we have a special guest today. We have Kelly Ramsey from Waiting and Hope Ministries. Hi, guys. Hey. How are you doing, Kelly? I'm great. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, we're excited to have you join us and we'll kind of get into, you know, your passion and what brought you into kind of this path of your life at this point. But we were talking a little bit before we started that you have some experience as a dancer. <laughs> yes. And we have none. So we want to hear about this. <laughs> well, and, and keep in mind, I'm from Vegas. So when I hear dancer, <laughs> yeah, especially yeah. from someone who's coming from a ministry, it's we're probably thinking of two different types of dancing yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, <laughs> sure. It's like as you become an adult, like you can't actually say I was a dancer anymore because then it just sounds odd. Um, <laughs> but I danced. So I was probably... 1920 um, thought that was actually, if I was, I went back for a reunion recently to my drill team. And I remember that was something I wrote down was that I would be a dance teacher. Clearly not what I'm doing, but <laughs> that was what my got sent in a different direction. Totally. Um, but yeah. So, what, so what, kind of, what kind of dancing? Yeah. Yeah. I did jazz ballet, um, pretended to do tap. And <laughs> did you do it as part of a company or competitively or um so i did for my school i also did some for my local dance studio um competitive was like not a thing yeah something years ago so yeah. i mean maybe if you were in like large large cities it was but this was pre you know dance moms and all yeah. that <laughs> what was your favorite dancing costume slash outfit because I remember growing up I would always see pictures of my friends who were dancers that yep. would not include me because I have two left feet but I, I have they, to admit I did dance from the time I was three until I was 17. Susan we have never heard this before how Where did we this not come from? This? how do we not know this see, there's always things you learn also, there needs to be pictures of you in a sequiny, sparkly outfit somewhere that we need to see. This needs <laughs> oh, to go on the Instagram. I was going to say, the web. Unfortunately, there are videos too. <laughs> wow. I'm impressed by both of you dancers. I'm you like, Terry had two left feet. I never did any dancing. <laughs> I want to know what your favorite outfits were. Or what the worst outfits okay, were. Okay, well, here's a good story. So I somehow got myself even as like a eight-year-old in every dance that I could somehow I would like show up to help or you know I basically the dance instructor would take me from daycare to dance and then my mom oh, would wow. actually pick me up I like lived there and so <laughs> I was in this one that I somehow put myself into from daycare that was way younger than me but I was helping and I guess my change was too fast. This is still, oh, no. this is on video. Oh no. And so like, wardrobe, an ad wardrobe just, malfunction. 
Yeah, it had a lot of ties and a lot of things. And so I was losing costume as the dance went on. Luckily, oh. everything was covered and it was fine. And I didn't have much to cover. I was only like seven, but. Oh. <laughs> now, I see, still... that's the kind of dancing in Vegas that I've used. I used yeah. <laughs> that's what you thought of. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. <laughs> I have to say yesterday when I was um, flipping through Facebook and it has like the little videos and it had Hugh Jackman at the Tony Awards doing the Music Man. Oh my goodness. Okay. So like Hugh Jackman. Mm, yes. Oh yeah. Place in my heart. Okay. Yes. And like, I, I mean, Les Mis loved him. Absolutely amazing. He's a great actor. He can sing. He can dance. Oh my gosh, he was tap dancing. Like you were talking about tap, tap dancing. He was tap dancing. And I'm like, oh, it was just so much that fun. That is still the best openings by far. But yeah. Greatest Showman, we watch a lot at my house. Oh, and yes. oh, his singing and dancing in that. A plus. And he's cute. He, he is. is. He's in, it seems to be a nice guy too, you know. Very yummy. Yeah. Watching the feud between him and Ryan Reynolds makes my heart happy. There's a feud? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Really? Abby, see, this is the rabbit hole that I go down occasionally. Um, I have People Magazine, Carrie. How do I not know this? I have no idea because I do not have People Magazine. And um, And you know this. The Who Wore It Best is, yeah, is the best (laughs) People Magazine. However, um, I will send you memes. Oh, okay. So Kelly, I have one last question. Sorry. Did you, did you ever have any injuries? Cause I know dancing can be kind of dangerous actually. Yeah. My knees still hurt quite a bit. I'm sure I need some kind of surgery, but I'm just pushing through. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure like my, I think it's like the, I uh, see not a doctor, the cartilage I think has worn yeah. off. And so I just sometimes rubs uh, wow. like tennis or anything like that. I can't do cause it's too high impact on the and Susan, I feel this question's for you as well. Do you have any injuries that you haven't gotten over from dancing? I really don't. I mean, like I did it for fun and I, I did it consistently, but I didn't, I didn't actually, I, it was the closest thing to a sport that I was good at. <laughs> so, as, as somebody who has a number of basketball players in my family, I am the odd person out in that if there was a flying ball of any type, it was aimed for my head. Like seriously, there was a day that I hit a ball with a bat and it came back and hit me in the head. I was so excited I actually did it and it hit me in the head. So like that was not my forte, but dance was, and I loved it. And, um, it was, it was, it was good. It was, it was kind of, that's good. it was just a little segment of my life. See, that's the one reason why I say I'm glad I wasn't a high school athlete. Cause I don't have any of those joints yet that need to be replaced or torn or I didn't ever injure anything. Cause I wasn't, I wasn't good enough to play. anything. So <laughs> I'm right there with you, Abby. Well, let's go on to our question of the day. All right. So our question today is, in 2018, after trying for a year, my husband and I started basic testing. I did an HSG and he had a semen analysis. Everything was normal. I ended up getting pregnant a few months later without treatment. Now we once again are beyond the one-year mark in, in connection with trying for number two. After four success, unsuccessful Clomid months, my husband did a semen analysis and had a significant drop into the subfertile range for morphology, 3%, and some decrease in motility, um, total motility down from 81 to 56, progressive from 52 to 33. At that point, we moved 
to our RE who's having him see a urologist before we decide on IUI or IVF. We're both 31. My questions are, how important is morphology in deciding IVF versus IUI? And should I repeat the HSG? So I'll, I'll take the easy part. <laughs> Don't repeat the HSG. Don't repeat it. <laughs> Don't repeat the HSG. It hurts. I mean, seriously, it, it, I mean, unless you've had a pelvic infection or something unusual, like a ruptured appendix or something between now and when you had it, the chances of finding something significant on that repeat HSG are not worth the um, potential discomfort of such an exam. Well, and really the semen analysis question, I think, is not that hard of a question either, because really what you told us is not that bad. I mean, Morphology, nobody really knows if morphology is important or not. There's not really tests for that anymore. Um, you know, motility is not bad. I mean, it's actually pretty good. Even I think she said 56% motility. I mean, that's actually good. That's normal. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my thought would be there's a big difference between IUI and IVF in terms of cost, in terms of success. Um, you know, I would talk to your doctor and, and have them help you make the final decision. Um, it really depends on how nervous you are about it or stressed about it. IVF has a much better success rate, but it's a lot more involved and a lot more expensive. You know, I, I guess my thought would be if you were my patient, I'd say, why not try a few IUIs? If it doesn't work, then we can always move on to I, IVF. So right now, I think things look pretty good and I'm optimistic, hopefully, that you'll get pregnant soon. What do you think, Carrie? Morphology is kind of a soft finding. And, and even if it's not the Hugh Jackman of sperm that fertilizes the egg, <laughs> Even it if you can't tap dance and sing, it doesn't mean it's, it can't do the normal things. It doesn't mean you won't have Hugh Jackman as a baby. And so, <laughs> you know, if, if it works, it, it works. So I, I would probably take a deep breath and give yourself the, give yourself the leeway to do what makes the most sense for you guys. If, if you're up to your eyeballs and, oh my God, this has to work right away. Otherwise I'm going to lose my ever loving mind. Go to IVF. If you're like, let me take a deep breath and let's try the easy way first do IUI. I, either is reasonable with what you've described. Like there's nothing, unless you want a bunch more kids, it's going to push you in your late thirties, you know, do whatever you want to do. Yeah. I, I mean, I would like to mention that probably about once about every seven or eight years, there's a talk about whether or not we should just get rid of morphology. And it's the only thing that in my career we have talked about repetitively. And we always are like, eh, Eh. it might mean something, but probably not. So we might as well just leave it in there. And so it's one of those things that it is a piece of information, but I would not ever use it as the piece of information. Mm -hmm. Agreed. So, all right. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, Kelly, kind of talk to tell us a little bit about yourself and how Waiting and Hope became what it is and what exactly is it? Yes. Yes. So, um, I went through about three years of infertility in different scopes. I basically had the fast track as lots of people have told me, um, was sent to my doctor pretty quickly after about seven months of trying, which is not normal, but my blood work and I have a history of health issues, um, was not normal. And so she was like, let's just send you. And so when I got in there and we did testing and looked at everything, um, they weren't for certain what was going on. However, it was me. Um, and I wasn't, let's see, I wasn't 
wasn't ovulating for sure. Uh, my progesterone and my estrogen were all off. And so maybe you guys can diagnose me why we're here today. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but what ended up happening was we went on this really fast track of different treatments, um, IUIs, um, almost to IVF. I overstimulated. So they were like, do you want to do it tomorrow? And just like, you know, my clinic was wonderful. They were trying to help us. Um, but emotionally we had two losses. And so our heart just took a while in the process and we really struggled emotionally and we have a really solid marriage, but that was the first time we really, really, really struggled. And, um, so with that said, um, I went to my, women's director at my church and was just like, there's gotta be other people like me, <laughs> please help me. And I'm willing to, you know, help to do whatever. There's gotta be more of us. And she was like, actually, there's a few of you asking for this and didn't know at the time that it was three other women from my young marriage class who we were all hiding, you know, instead of every Sunday, there was a particular uh, you know, announcement of a baby or whatever. Yeah, that's hard. We're hiding and we didn't know and we we're close. And so here we are, we start this group and women just start showing up from all over town. And it was like, okay, we got to keep doing this. And we held an event. Um, I can't even tell you what year, I think it was back in 2015. And it was like, people were showing up from hours away and couples and oh, wow. the room was like 200 plus. And we were like, okay, I guess we need to figure out how to do this for others because they need it too. And so that's basically how Waiting Hope was born right then and there. We were like, okay, my husband's a dentist and he owns multiple offices and he has similar things. I need to replicate that with this. So let's figure it out. And we had already started writing curriculum um, during the time that we were leading group and it just grew from there. Um, it's now a national ministry. We partner with churches directly to help them have training curriculum to actually have an infertility support group for their women and their couples. But then we also hold national events like couples retreats and online things and go from there. Um, we also have some really exciting things that I can't share quite yet, um, but they're big things in the works that are just, I wish I would have had and wish we would have done earlier, but. That's really awesome. How many churches are you in? That's, I didn't realize you were so big. That's impressive. Yeah. I can't even tell you the exact number right now because it changes. Um, my assistant would know um, because <laughs> we literally give them all the material and I may have one or two calls with them. Um, but I think currently there's about 17. Oh, wow. Um, about 20 that are in and out of talks with us. So it's continually oh, that's great. changing and growing. Our original first few were about, um, let's see, about 10. And then we figured out what we were doing and what we liked about it and how to do it well. And what to do. And we were like, okay, we can do this and take it and grow it um, so that more people can have support. Cause that's what we really wanted. Um, so, yeah. So when, when you were going through your fertility journey, okay. Um, it, it sounds like you, you really needed people to reach out to. And, and why did you reach out to people at your church? What, what made that as kind of the natural place for you to go personally? Yeah, I just felt like I needed support. Like my husband and I had always done everything 
openly in our marriage and in our life. We were one of the first people to get married. So like, you know, we were always the ones that everyone went to to ask questions about sex and all of those kinds of things. Like, so for us, this became a very private and closed door in our life. And that just felt odd because then you just feel alone. You feel isolated. Yeah. Like you're the only one, which is obviously not true. And then all the lies start to happen of like, I'm, you know, I'm the only one going through this. I'm never going to get out of this. Like it just would spiral and it became more of an emotional journey. And then, and I was like, well, if I can get the emotional journey under control by talking to others who are going through this and give us a focus of what to look forward to, because I don't know if this journey is going to end. I don't know what my story has in front of me and I want to be okay right now. And I want to be okay in the future, whatever that may be. And so for me, that was the hope. And um, our hope that we're waiting for is Jesus um, as a ministry. And what we teach to the women and the couples is that like, this may end tomorrow and you may get the amazing gift of a baby, or you may be like one of my childless friends who will never, um, and we actually have a lot of women who come to us from who are sing, like stuck in singleness as well, because mm-hmm. they're just like, no one gets that I have all these desires that aren't being fulfilled. And mm-hmm. so for us, it was for me and for us, it was very much a let's get to the heart of this. And the heart of it is very spiritual because it is very like, this is all I want. Why is God not answering this? Like, why is this not happening? What have I done wrong? And so those are always the questions I feel like most of us ask of like, why, you know, like, did I do something wrong? Have I understood incorrectly? Or is this just who I am? And so we wanted to get to some of that because I wasn't infertile. That's not who I was. Mm-hmm. And my journey actually shows that I wasn't infertile. I was able to conceive both boys without treatment, actually, in between having lots of different treatments. Um And it was just a different story. I wasn't writing. And that was the hardest part is mentally being okay with that. Like I had diagnoses and there was things that needed to, to be worked on and figured out. But I also had just this heart journey I had to go through of realizing that I wasn't in control of my life. And like, you can't control a baby. You can't control a pregnancy. You can't (laughs) control life. Yeah. You're out of control. That's true. So how do you think your Christianity or, or Christianity of the, the people that you work with sort of helps them decide what kinds of treatments they want to do? I mean, did, did, is that something that you guys talk about? Or is it more just kind of the spiritual aspect of accepting yeah. fertility or infertility? Yeah. Well, our curriculum doesn't like have a, this is what we say to do or not do because everyone's journey is so different. And yeah. for us, the Holy Spirit inside of you will guide you and will show you because for instance, if I would have been in a different place in my journey when I overstimulated and they offered to do IVF the next day, like to start, <laughs> I would have been like, yes. Yes. Little did I know that we had like no money, you know, like everything we would have done at that it time. It would have been good at that time. Right. Yeah. And our marriage yeah. was not ready for that. Yeah. Um, those types of decisions, that type of stress. And we were already like holding on, you know, like it's, <laughs> by a thread. So it was not the right season for us. So Uh within Waiting in Hope, and I think just as a Christian, I think, and we also minister to those who aren't Christians. We have all kinds of people who come to group because they just want to feel like support. Yeah. They want to be known and seen. And, you know, they want, they don't want to just wallow as well. Like they want to 
they want to have some kind of hope. They want to point to, okay, this isn't going to be my forever. This isn't going to stay in this place as infertile, if you will. And so the decision-making was affected by everything I believed in. And so, you know, I'd have a doctor suggest something and we would ask questions back. And sometimes we were those difficult patients and I'd be like, okay, well, why? Well, can we try this a little longer or could Mm -hmm. we do this? And obviously I'm going to trust them for what decisions um, they know are best for me. But there was also even times where I I was like, no, I think we need to halt because emotionally I couldn't handle it anymore. And spiritually Mm -hmm. that was going to affect me a lot. And so, and that's a perfect example where we were like, we're not ready yet for that. We know we may, we don't know, but we don't feel like we're ready for that tomorrow. It was, it was Valentine's night. And here we are at our dinner. We'd already made reservations for, and we're like, (laughs) we're like, everyone's having lovey-dovey conversation around us. And we're like, do we start IVF tomorrow? Do we, call, <laughs> do we call every single person we know right now to get money? I'm pretty sure Nana would give us all the money. Like, and, um, you know, See, like, I no, like, I have no understanding why that would be a weird conversation. Like, <laughs> well, for the three of you, it might not. My husband and I were driving on their way to Kansas one day and we're like, are we going to have a third kid? Are, are we actually going to go for this? And like on that vacation, it was like, Plan came home. <laughs> yeah. Decided to do IBS. <laughs> we were, yeah. I just thought it was so funny because here we are sitting at this romantic dinner and everyone's, you know, talking about how cute their life is and their couple. And we're like having this deep, hard conversation. And I'm like, well, this changes this. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, for us, it was never. And if we're going to do something or not, it was a, is it the right timing? Is it our, where we're feeling led to go? Um, Are there clear provisions to get there? Or is it like us ripping and scratching and clawing to get to what we want? And so, and then it's a control issue thing, you know, like, and, and that was for me, some of the big red flags, like, we could have called every single person we knew. We could have forced it to happen the very next day. Um, but I really do, looking back, think I, my husband protected us from a lot of emotional strain we weren't ready for. Um, mm-hmm. And for us, like our tax return was two weeks late and it would have been almost the exact amount. Like it was a big one that time for some reason. And we just bought our first car and we were like, well, clearly there's no money right now <laughs> to do that because we were young and dumb. But yeah (laughs) it sounds like you were able to accept the challenges that you had pretty well though it sounds like you came through the roadblocks pretty well speak to that to some of the people that are listening right now because I think that's a really hard challenge for a lot of people to be able to be resilient yeah the roadblocks are the hardest part because it's just a constant roller coaster it's a constant up and down and then hitting the brakes and not understanding why like you know the three losses I had every time we're like blindsided, like it just didn't make sense, you know, or even the failed treatment attempts and cycles always felt like it's so good. It's so good. It's so good. Oh, and I don't know why at the time they were something I felt like I could see past. I think at the moment it didn't feel that way. It felt very much like, what am I going to do? Like this is life shattering. And for moments, it was the miscarriages were 
so hard. Um, my sweet OB was like, I am so, when we finally decided we were done trying, she was like, I am so glad. I love you guys, but I can't watch this anymore. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, I think it's really, the roadblocks are really about what you have hope in. You know, is is your hope in this baby? Is your hope in the future of exactly the way you have it mapped out and planned? Because we all have some vision of expectations of what we want it all to be. And the sooner we realize that our life is a gift, but it's not for us to plan because God's going to do something way bigger than we can ever imagine and way better than we can imagine, though at the time it doesn't always feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the hard part. That's the part of, of that really takes faith and really takes going, okay, he's always been for my good. So this doesn't feel good right now. But for some reason, this will be good later. And Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that everyone's going to start something. But I do believe that the Lord allows us to go through pain so that we can comfort others. You know, mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. That has been one of the most beautiful things I've seen within our communities is women coming beside each other and like helping each other in the hardest things in life. And these women... I kid you not end up becoming friends that continue and still like have that same message thread or whatever. And, you know, so-and-so is struggling with something totally different cancer. Like one of our online girls went through endometriosis cancer and watching them love her and support her and, and care for her in something completely different was just the most beautiful thing. Cause we all need community and we all need help getting through life. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> Um, one time when you and I have talked previously, I, I know that a lot of the focus is helping maintain relationships, whether that's with your spouse or your partner or your sister or your mom or your friends. Um, what, what can you say uh, about that? Yeah. Oh, man, that's a hard one. You know, when you're in it, you're like, and I'm sure your patients remind you of this all the time. I'm just like, so-and-so said something dumb again, you know, mm-hmm. I mean it was insert foot constantly where I remember thinking if I just start crying to the right <laughs> person, like will it, make, will it make it better? If I'm like yeah. falling when she asks me if I have kids and clearly I don't like <laughs> or whatever. And I, I think, think that's a good solution. That would make her feel really bad in the process too. <laughs> it would make her think twice about any questions she asks in the future. That's for sure. Oh man. And I mean, there was one time where literally I like, lost it at a restaurant, just emotional mess. And my husband like wrote on their sheet, like, I'm sorry, she's hormonal. Like, (laughs) which was fine. I gave him the okay to do that because he like worked in the area and he's like, Kelly, we could be my patients or something. He said, yeah. And because I just couldn't handle it anymore. The questions, the comments and, um, are you a date night? Like, you know, where are your kids? Because, you know, at our point, we'd been married seven years. And, mm. um, and so everyone had children around us, but us. Yeah. And we were the ones that like, do you want kids? <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, so for us, I think some of the most important things in Waiting Hope is we teach an elevator pitch, um, which actually came huh. from my best friend. Um, and which I love, she, when I was struggling and going through it, she was like, you need an elevator pitch. You need a few words to say in a few seconds to explain <laughs> these hard questions. Yeah. Of like, what's your response when someone asks something like, do you want kids or do you have any kids? 
or whatever. And it could be something very generic, or it could be something that explains a little more depending on the situation, if it's a friend or if it's gas station. Yeah. And so it gives you a level of comfort, but you have something already in your back pocket. So you're not caught off guard. You're ready. And you like, I got this. (laughs) Otherwise, if you're anything like me, you just like, oh, like just (laughs) or you explode or something. Um, And I think one of the things we like, I like to share is just like the sensitivity. Like we have forgotten how to be sensitive to people Mm -hmm. and like, we don't know what Joe Schmo is going through when we run into them, you know? Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was thinking, if I just ball, will it make it better? And I thought, well, what if she's having a really hard day? You know, like, I don't know that. So I think of just sensitivity. If we're just aware of what words come out of our mouth, and I do it all the time too, where I'm like, oh, come back. But even if you can be patient with people and be sensitive... So give us an example of the elevator pitch. I think our listeners would really like to have that. I mean, just having a few things in your back pocket for like Aunt Aunt Sally. Oh no. What does Aunt Sally say? (laughs) If she's from the South, it could be interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, okay. So Aunt Sally's, you know, when are you going to give me, you know, what does that make them? Nieces and nephews. (laughs) When are you going to give me nieces and nephews, you know, or... When are you going to start having kids? Well, Aunt Sally, you know, we wish we had some already, but it's just not in the plan for us yet. We're trying. If you feel comfortable, if Aunt Sally doesn't need that much information, then you just say, well, you know, hopefully soon. Yeah. But at least you have a response to know you're ready. Um, for the generic ones, like when it was just at the store or whatever, um, my typical response was, um, we wish we did, hopefully soon. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's great because that sort of implies that they're being a little nosy and that mm-hmm. you're really hurting it. I mean, that's a great, yeah. just those few words. Yeah. And I mean, I started changing the conversation of, um, I think what I like to start changing the conversation was instead of, hi, it's nice to meet you. Do you have any kids? Are you married? Like, that's what people do. I tried to start saying, changing it to tell me a little about yourself. You know, let me know who you are then they can tell you whatever they want. Right, yeah. They tell you to learn more about somebody doing that than you do asking the stupid demographics questions. But I think the friendships and the relationships is the hardest one because we aren't willing to make the effort because we're already hurting. And so we've got this chip on our shoulder that I noticed I had. And so I didn't understand why my friends weren't being friends. And I didn't understand why my family wasn't being family. But yet I wasn't willing to make the effort to help them understand because mm-hmm. I was so hurt. And so I'm emotional just thinking about it right now. And I'm not even emotional. But the it causes the most strain, I think. And it's you got to address the elephant in the room. You got to mm-hmm. step into those hard conversations. And you got to own it and be big enough to be like, they're not going to get this. Like they just can't. And so if I don't explain it to them, then we have a rift between us that I can't, that will never potentially heal for a long time. And so that's where you have to make those decisions. There are friendships I've lost. There are friendships that got stronger because I pressed in. Well, I think sometimes too, the more you open up to people, you don't think maybe they'll understand, but you, 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 you may have a better relationship with them after you open up. And I mean, I I think you have to put yourself out there a little bit, but I think, you know, you've got to address, like you said, the pink elephant in the room for sure. Yours is pink. That's cute. 
<laughs> Man, that's one of my southern sayings. I don't know. I like it. I'm gonna steal it. <laughs> or it could be yeah. blue elephant, I guess, too. But <laughs> or gray. Or, yeah. Uh, the, I I think yeah. And what happens is I think especially like to Aunt Sally, the generic Aunt Sally that I keep picturing. <laughs> we give a lot of like false hope. This is a Southern thing, I think, too. Um, So you may totally relate to this. But there's a lot of like, I even saw this on vacation this last week. I run into someone, we're literally in Napa Valley, and somehow the ones we're touring with are going through infertility. She asked me what I do for a living. And I was like, (laughs) scared. And then they start nudging each other. And and Justin and I like looked at each other, my husband. And sure enough, they were like, well, this is crazy. We're about to start our last IVF tomorrow. And I was like, well, let's talk about that. But so Sally, Aunt Sally was across from them, also in our group. And she then proceeded to be like, you're going to have a baby. I just know it. Um, you're meant to be a mama. And I was like, oh, I'm going to need to talk to her after this because those are the things that are really hard to hear because you don't know that. Like, I'm already struggling to believe that's true, that my next cycle will work, that my next treatment will work. And so, and that's where this girl was very much. So she was like, this is my last IVF cycle. I sure hope this works. And she was like, She's like, I hear you to the response to the lady. I hear you. And I hope that's true. But I don't really even have hope to even think about that anymore. So, you know, thank you. Like, she didn't know what to say. And that's pretty typical. I get that a lot of, you know, those like, it's going to happen for you. And I, th- I think it's it's hard on both sides. Like, I mean, uh-huh. I even think of it like, so I have a friend, um, that I've known for a long time. And like, even in what I do, I don't want to ask somebody, you know, are you trying? But like, mm-hmm. this sounds so bad, but I know how old she is. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I have had other friends who did not, who I did not say anything to because I wanted to let them yeah. do their thing. And then they get to be 40, 41, 42. And now they're using donor egg. Mm. Because they waited. I feel bad because I didn't say anything because I didn't want to be that person, especially because of what I do. And like, what, what advice would you give to somebody who has a loved one that you are honestly concerned about and want to offer your hope and love and support to without being like, so are you going to get pregnant? (laughs) Can I help you? Um, oh, you guys have really tough questions. I'm sweating. If, if you have a friend, like if, yeah. if you have a friend, you know, even if you're suffering with infertility yourself and you have somebody or you have struggled with it in the past and there's somebody that you know that you think might, but you like, what, mm. what, would, what would be your question? Ooh, I mean, I think when you share your own story, like vulnerability creates vulnerability. Right. And so typically Mm -hmm. when we share our story or we open up, like you were just saying, but what if you don't have a story of your own? Oh, that's true. Okay. So I think you can say it in love. Like, I think you can say things of, you know, there's a difference between caring. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a difference between caring and 
saying flippant things to make someone feel better. Yeah. You know, like when someone's going through grief, I feel like we all just try to like, which is infertility is very much grief because it's the loss of your expectations. Like there's like this, we don't know what to do. So we just like want to put a bandaid on it and be like, you're better. And we move on, Yeah. which doesn't help the person and doesn't help us as a friend or a family member. And so I think if you, you know, take some time to be caring of like having that conversation of, I know Susan, you're really struggling. I I'm, feel like I've been meaning to ask you and talk to you to see if, you know, there's a way I can help you or something I can do. You, this may be something you don't need at all. I don't know, but I had this feeling um, that maybe I should just talk to you. I've done that numerous times with people just because of what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'll also get lots of mother-in-laws and mothers that will email me or call or whatever. But I also, there's these times where I just feel like I'm supposed to say something and I don't know what it is. Um, but even that situation where I'm in Napa Valley and I'm just, I don't know this person. And I just felt like I wanted to encourage her and I didn't know the full story, but I just wanted to encourage her of, you know, I've been there. I understand. And maybe I can help you. Do you have anything you want to ask me or anything you want to share that might help um, share that might help you and might help to hear from me. So that's awesome. That's awesome. Is there anything you would like to um, share as we wrap up today? Ooh, so broad. Um, I just really hope your readers, I mean, your readers, your listeners, like understand that they aren't alone. Because I would assume if they are listening, they are listening because they want to know information. You know, like even the beginning, I was like, I'm learning so much. I love this. And I love that you guys do this, that you have that. I wish this was around when I had all those questions. Like I didn't know what any of the medical terms meant and what they, I didn't have that, you know, besides my doctor who spoke a whole nother language. Um, and this is funny. I literally had my husband call him to ask questions because I just felt so intimidated and didn't know what to say. And I was like, you at least are. Because the dentist could communicate. Yeah, I'm like, not better. that he <laughs> really communicate either, but he at least could understand more than I could. I was just lost. I'd be like, those are a lot of numbers. I don't know. <laughs> I need a graph. But so I would just hope that they would know that they aren't alone, that even though they're, you know, looking for answers and they're looking for medical advice and and they may have serious medical issues, that they are not the only ones going through that. And they're not the only ones who have been through really hard things and that it will get better. And there is hope and there's going to be something beautiful. It may be a baby. It may not. It may be a totally different, you know, maybe twins. It may be adoption. Like I never know what, when I meet someone, what their story is going to be. And, but I know that it will be something beautiful because I've seen it in my own life. Well said. Thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. So to our audience, thank you so much for listening and be sure to listen um, next week for more. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. We are also on Instagram and Facebook. So please hop on by and leave us a like or follow and say hello. You can also visit us on fertility.suncensor.com to submit questions. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment or even leave us an episode idea. So don't hold back. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right. We'll talk to y'all soon. See you next week. Bye. Bye.